0: Thank mm-hmm. you.
1: I'm Charlie Rossiter, and this is Poetry Spoken Here. Our feature today is Rana Shirali. She was raised in Charleston, South Carolina, and currently teaches in Philadelphia at Holy Family University. She's got many awards, including the Black Lawrence Press Hudson Prize. And her latest book from Black Lawrence Press is Summonings, which focuses on the issue of witch hunting in India she uh, also has read all over the place, including 92nd Street Y and the Boston Poetry Slam at Cantab Lounge, which is a wonderful place, one of the best. And so welcome to the show. So glad you're here.
2: Thanks so much. I'm so happy to be here with you.
1: Let's, let's just start off with uh, a question about how did you get to witch hunting?
2: Yeah, great question. Um, when I was researching um, various instances of Hindu-Muslim violence in India for my first book, I kind of stumbled upon an article on Al Jazeera, I believe, initially, hmm. that documented witch hunting in India, very specifically looking at a couple highly publicized and really gruesome instances. And so I wrote you know, a couple poems about it. I was very interested in it and then i started hearing these resonances in conversations with family members and with other indian folks i know where people would you know make make reference to something superstitious right or say the word dayan which refers to um a, a witch technically but for my case a woman who's been accused of being a witch of course i was even watching a show recently an an indian show where they just casually say dayan right like So I became really interested in the idea that this word is used in pop culture a lot, both in the West and in the East, and also that these witch hunts are actively still taking place. So at the same time that we're, you know, talking about the term sort of loosely outside of the context of, of violence, the word is still innately connected to these instances of violence. And so once that sank its teeth into me, it it didn't really let go until I wrote a book.
1: That's just it's just so extreme. It's it's more like, okay, let's just go kill a woman. Yeah.
2: It is incredible. With all this apparatus
1: wrapped around it, you know?
2: Yeah. Yeah. It's um I think something interesting in the research that I found was that like at the end of the day, there is always misogyny involved here with witch hunting, but also there's so many other factors that motivate a witch hunt. Um, these are in communities where people are like massively disenfranchised and they want to be able to like pin things on someone, right? There's a scapegoating that happens, um, where if crops die, right. It's easy to say that woman made the crops die, right. Or if there's famine, it's easy to say, okay, Um, that witch made this famine happen. So there are these, these really complicated, power structures and systemic reasons around the the witch hunts themselves. Um, But you're right that at the end end of the day, it is incredibly extreme to point at someone and say, they are not like us and they should be executed, essentially.
1: Really, yeah. Yeah, I know you, among the quotes, you have quotes from people who are accused throughout the book, kind of punctuating sections. And one of them mentioned people being uh, accused when the wells run dry in the summer But the yeah, whole thing yeah. is and just yeah that quote bizarre. is from a
2: politician too which is so interesting like at the political level people acknowledge right um like that's a that's a party whip from Jharkhand saying yeah people here even when a well goes dry in the summer accuse someone so it's it's well known about there it's less well known about here but hopefully the book will do something to change that
1: how how in your mind do you frame the way it's framed here it's done here but we don't call them witches so what do we do here in the us in Mm, your view of how it's executed i guess you could say
2: yeah well you know i think there's formal hunting of groups of people and there's informal hunting of groups of people and that plays out in different ways in each country throughout each country's history and when i say each kind referring to Mm -hmm. india and america Mm. Um, so from for my end, I'm, I'm particularly interested in the way women are informally hunted in America. Um, you know, it's not safe for women to walk around at night or, you know, there's this thing of keep the keys in between your, you know, the, in between your knuckles and pointed outward or pepper spray or all these protective measures that mm-hmm. we're supposed to take to ensure our safety from, and a non-formalized threat, right? From a vague specter uh-huh. of yeah. of a threat, which is still misogyny, right? Which is still sure. rooted in misogyny. Um and so yeah, I see that as a version of it's it's a, it's a culture of fear, right? Um, that we're being asked to yeah. to abide by, not just to live under, but to say, okay, this is how we have to live. So we do it. <laughs> make our peace with it, put the keys between the fists, you know? Um yeah. so yeah, I think that's that is one of the most obvious connections I'm making in the book um,
1: good.
2: between each culture's lack of safety for, uh, for women. Yeah.
1: All right. Well, maybe we should hear a poem. In fact, we should hear a poem.
2: Yeah. <laughs> Let's hear a poem. Um, I'll start with this piece that I think is very, very connected to, to what we're discussing right now. It's called pastoral with keys clenched as a weapon in my fist. How the fat pink blossoms smell of sex and the season when all girls cower has passed. Onward in the dimming light I hold the dog close to my side with a tether. I'm followed by such a train of ooze and before me the white boys on the fourth floor unfurl their only emblem their same colors as acceptable pride, reconfiguration of stripes to flatten. What women should wear and how, what a country should wear and when. If I wrap myself in flags, or if I wrap myself in many warnings, if I point to the dog at my side when making eye contact with any of the same type who held me against a brick wall, How the fat squirrels don't duck when the dog lunges toward them, and I think, without thinking, another species asking to die. Fat pink blossom, sex emblem, pepper spraying my way through America, I am my survival instinct, or I am not my survival instinct. Daily, I learn, reconfigure the self as almost not killable, almost not fuckable. Keep walking and take stock of my surroundings. Only dead girls check their phones. I am a fat pink sex symbol. I agree with you.
1: Mm, I love that poem. Thank you. (laughs) It says so much. When you were doing... was your research, uh, you interviewed people, is that true? Or was it reading in or what? No, I didn't actually, like get it.
2: Yeah, of course, um, it, it's important to talk about. So this, all the research I'm putting in the book is research that I consulted rather than research that I executed. I think with research, it's hard to talk about, right? Because okay. there's primary research, secondary research, and how many parties removed are you when you're learning okay. about something. Um, but yeah, I read, you know, a series of like ten to twelve books that deal with witch hunting in some capacity. Some of those were really focused on um on the regions that I'm focusing on in summonings. Mm-hmm. And some of those were a bit more abstract thinking about the nature of witch hunting as a mm-hmm. human practice more broadly across cultures. Um, but yeah, none of none of the research itself involved me going to India and interviewing folks and that's important to me because it's it's part of what I wrestle with in the book is having this particular subject matter and knowing that I'm at a great distance from it and yet still seeing connections and and writing into connections right. Um, between what's going on uh, in India and and what I see around me in the States too. So both connection and distance are like yeah. at odds with each other here, if that yeah. makes sense. Yeah, I
1: read some yeah. of the other things you said and you you uh, are concerned about the persona level.
2: Oh yeah.
1: Oh, persona yeah. nearness, we should can we call concerned. it as an issue? Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. Totally. That's a beautiful yeah. frame. I love that. Yeah.
1: yeah, yeah. Okay. Just wondering about that one. And what else did I want to ask you about that? Format. I like putting the space before the colon. I'm not sure. I think it just makes you realize it's there. Me, I think that's an idiosyncratic, personal response. It makes me realize it's there when it's crunched up against the last letter. It's not uh, quite as obvious. I'm a, I'm a fan of little things like that. And also, um, what what's your view uh, or rationale for getting off the left margin? Mm.
2: Gosh, two absolutely poet asking another poet questions. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> That's Awesome. Um, I'm like dying to talk about the spaces around the colons. <laughs> and, and you know what? Always love talking about leaving the left margin. Um, I guess we'll talk about the colons first. We'll take them in order. I think that you're right, that when the colon is squished up against the word preceding it, it gets kind of consumed by it, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. And What I'm interested in the colon doing in these poems is setting up comparisons and connections. And I thought it was really important that each side of the colon, what's on each side, be weighed equally. And that the space was part of sort of putting them on like a scale, you know? Um, And so I'm really glad you picked up on that. I'm I'm thrilled to hear that it's, it was painstaking to do because Microsoft Word edits it back to the, you know, the normal (laughs) usage each time. So I'm thrilled, thrilled that it landed with you. Um oh, man. yeah, Collins. Oh, punctuation's so fun. I, I would I want to do an interview all about punctuation. Oh, you know? Wow. <laughs> oh, so fun. Um and yeah, the left margin, I think I think it's it's similar in this way, which is you know, I, I have my MFA and not to brag. Um, and I'm saying that because I was taught by some really incredible mentors that every decision, including the punctuation decisions must have a point, not not just that it must be thoughtful, but that it must have meaning, right? Um, And I think that that philosophy is inside of every decision I make in these poems in a way that could, of course, overwhelm a reader Mm -hmm. or a listener. So to focus on two is a good idea. (laughs) Um, but I think about that with the left margin too, right? So if the left margin is where we expect a piece to begin, then pushing away from the left margin inherently pushes the reader away from their space of comfort, even from the start of a poem. Hmm. And I I think it's very important to me that readers... Be slightly if not incredibly uncomfortable while reading this book because it was uncomfortable to research the material for this book and it was uncomfortable to be in the generative space of writing the poems too Um, they didn't feel like your left margin poems a lot of the time they felt destabilizing and destabilized and so yeah my hope is that the forms of the poems encapsulate that in some way
1: Um, I'm I'm tortured by a not-quite-recollection of Ferlinghetti talking about this. I can't remember what he said about it. Oh no!
2: Oh, no. I can't either. I hate the feeling of
1: not-quite-recollection. Well, I mean, when he said it, it was really interesting. I went, oh, that makes sense. Sorry. Confession, that's all. Yes, public confession. I'm guilty. Not remembering everything I read. Well, anyway, let's hear another poem. That's always a good thing to do. Sure.
2: I'll read one that spans the space between the states and India a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it seems like we're sort of for this particular recording, starting in the states and kind of tiptoeing over to India. Um, so this poem is actually written after uh, a Kathy Lynche poem, um Los Angeles Manila Dunung. So I was really inspired by this idea of starting the poem in one place and ending it in another and using the title to sort of reach across an ocean. Um, So this poem is called Jodhpur Jharkhand, Philadelphia. The air is writ of ash and sand, though this is no memorial. Camels buckle clumsily groundward, and I've forgotten how to grieve I was nowhere when my grandparents died, just like I'm nowhere now, picturing Jan temples and carved elephants and the faces of so many monkeys huddled on eaves. I wish all women on earth a day of invisible. I wish for no trials, no cat calls, no sound. Like how I am on this dune, transparent, wondering about power and numbers. Bodies of accused women go unreported while I roast dough over dull heat. This in the country, empire left behind. Here, the flower silted air. Hear the warm, dry scent of pyre. I'm moving now through paved streets, all old film and detergent, kept aloft by gusts from subway grates, wondering how the river smells when women are dragged into it. The pink city turning blue at dusk, sandstone falling into music. At a wedding in the West, my great aunt celebrates her sister's death. Spirits, she sings, are all around us, good and evil, and will we lend an open ear. Here is my plea on Q, Q country of drought and several gods, country of waterfalls rung brown with soils unease. I'm not there enough not you enough. And I've come to ask what to do with our dead. River river mouth and useless, reading up on reportage. I'm by a stream or in the desert or dragging my scent through the unwashed city. What good is brotherly love? What good is empire paving over ground, bones? I don't know why my story matters. I don't know why this story.
1: Thank you. You know, folks, this kind of a poem is perfect for a podcast because you can go back and listen to it again. And it's a pretty good idea because there's so much in it. In fact, you may even want to get a book called Summonings because these are the kind of poems that you can dwell in and go back to and That's basically the norm in this book. Yeah.
2: I appreciate that. Thank you. It's a a beautiful reading of the text.
1: very grateful. It's just lovely. Yeah. Why don't you just do another one? Sure. And then we'll chat some more.
2: That sounds great. All right. Um, I'll read one here that is one of those complicated ones I'm out or concerned about. Um, I think it's important to say in podcast form too, that, I don't believe that any persona poem can necessarily succeed in the project of stepping outside of the author's Mm. subjectivity, right? Like you're always still there even when you step outside of yourself, right? Um, Or try to step outside of yourself. So I think this poem is, is a good example of a poet trying to hold up a mask and then the mask falling away. Right, mm. and the, po- the poet's still being there, uh-huh. um, though the title frames it as a persona poem. So it's called Dion at Gold Streak River. If at dusk the river's peach trembles into soot, if hip thick in mist I trace petals on waves. If the ripple slurs on past its outer limit, if the fact of my finger makes the sky gild, if from a distance I look like a ghost, it's because I'm out here with my ghosts. If the men yell bongas, suspect our flush places wax carnal, if plumes off the shoreline mean that's our earth killing again and we know about killing about twine binding ankles to a thin branch if my ghosts tell me how they lived morning sizzling dew off the shrubs the smallness of a tea leaf in a hand the power to crush or fray a living thing fiber by fiber, if I say to one, it's getting dark, and she turns her head toward me, backlit by gold streak, says, but you are the matron of water, her eyes pepper swollen, limbs thick with sinking, if the castor plant grazed her skin nightly, if we float if we float if we float and soak the lentils and follow the fields rose and if we came here as brides and they threw us a feast said welcome sisters i say here we are at the end of the earth if the sky immolates magenta rimming the day as it dies if it looks hopeless if it is hopeless on the shore men jeer and hurl branches if we don't turn back if we wade out together cursed women and find mountains instead
1: Mm -hmm. here's a question for you something you said somewhere what's a poem that does not inquire about poetry's purpose
2: yeah (laughs)
1: it's something that's not always obvious in many poems, I would say, as as I understand, but I'm curious for you to elaborate on that because it's very interesting.
2: Of course. Yeah. Um, I think, I think in order to talk about that, I have to talk a little bit about the process of writing the book, which is that I started writing. Maybe, maybe obviously by now, persona poems Um, seeking to kind of embody each aspect of the landscape of the villages where where these witch hunts occur so in the book there are a lot of poems from perspective for example of the mountains that are overlooking right the village or the the tea leaves um, that are on these tea plantations um, what would they say if they saw right um humans moving around in this way around them and then it became clear to me super quickly that the book could not only be that and that i had to i had to think critically about what it means to try to step out of yourself in poetry um because i i didn't want the book to make it seem like i was mining for interesting material right and rather the connection i felt here to this content was stronger than the persona poems were giving me access to talk about hmm. And so the only way I felt like I could talk about them or, or about the connection was through writing about the act of writing poetry. <laughs> and, and I think that that might be a nightmare for non-poets, to be honest. Right? <laughs> it's, it's sort of the argument that every, every poem in the book can be seen as an Ars Poetica, um, a poem about the difficulty of, of writing. But now that I've gone that far, far into the sort of meta, (laughs) the meta thinking, Mm -hmm. um, or now that I went that far into the meta thinking in the writing of the book. Yeah, I I think it poses a bigger question. It's the very question you asked, Charlie, which is like, is there such a thing as a poem that isn't also kind of about the labor of writing a poem um, or about the spiritual experience of writing a poem and isn't experiencing the reading, right, of a poem, a kind of transcendence into the art form in that way as well. Um, like the poems, the poem is not a means to other material, it is itself a commentary on itself. I think that that's endlessly fascinating to me. Um, I love the, the idea that any poem could be read as an art poetica, and often that's true if you look at like the line is unit or line break in a poet a poem you love that's you know mm-hmm. seems to be quote just a love poem every poem is like a little love letter to poetry as a medium you know
1: that's a good one that'd be a nice bumper sticker you know
2: oh yeah let's make them <laughs> let's get rich
1: <laughs> oh yeah yeah that, that works with poetry, yeah, that'll work of <laughs> great plan yeah well you know what <laughs> Loved hearing your poetry I'm so glad we could do this And, uh, folks, you're listening to Poetry Spoken here. Our feature today, Rana Shirali, currently in Philadelphia, reading from her new book, Summonings, which, as you've heard, is pretty damn interesting. (laughs) And so, I hope you'll be with us again next time to let poetry speak to you. You've been listening to Poetry Spoken Here. I'm Charlie Rossiter, inviting you to join us again next time to Let Poetry Speak to You. Music for today's program was written and performed by Jack Rossiter-Mundley. And remember, Poetry Spoken Here is more than a podcast. You can like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash poetryspokenhere. Follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash poetryspokenhere.